Good morning. If you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to John chapter 11. That's where we find ourselves in our journey through the Gospel of John. We've been in John chapter 11 for a couple of weeks here looking at this experience that Jesus had with bringing Lazarus out of the grave. So we spent the first few weeks looking at how this builds towards where we are today, where literally we're going to see where Jesus calls him forth from the grave back to life again. Now, the way John structured this, for whatever reason, he gave it to us in these bite-sized chunks. When you begin in chapter 11, Jesus is having this conversation with his disciples. When you go to the next section, he's having a conversation with Mary. When you go to the next section, he's having a conversation with Martha. And then the section going into Lazarus' resurrection, he has a conversation with Lazarus, where Lazarus really doesn't respond. He just has a one-way conversation with him right there at the grave. And so it builds bringing in these characters, and these characters' personalities come out as well. We see the disciples and they were just all over the place, right? Um, they were like, uh, hey, uh, Lazarus um, has fallen asleep, and I need to go and wake him. And they were like, Lord, uh, if he's fallen asleep, I think he can wake up on his own. And Jesus was trying to be very eloquent and talk about death in a real good spiritual perspective. They ain't going to get it. They just don't understand anything. And um, he was like, Lazarus is dead. I've, I've got to go raise him from the dead. And they were like, oh, well, we can't go to Jerusalem. They were just trying to stone you there. And he was like, oh, my goodness. Anyway, so you didn't hear me. I was raised him from the dead, and you're scared somebody might kill us? Anyway, so the disciples don't get it. Then the next thing is Martha. So she runs out when she finds out that Jesus has come there. Remember, he delayed his arrival there for a couple of days because he was given Lazarus plenty of time to not only be dead but to be buried and in the grave for a few days so um, he does that purposefully it's very interesting the scripture literally says because he loved them he did not go for two more days I mean that's just an amazing right there and I could I could preach for days on end but we don't have time to do that and we approach it Martha runs out she finds out he's coming she comes out and she makes this declaration Lord if you had been here I am sure that my brother will not die. He looks at her and says, your brother will live again. Your brother will be raised. And he goes, I know, I know. He'll be raised on the last day. And Jesus looks at her and goes, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he may die, yet he shall live. And um, he looks at her and says, do you believe this? And she makes this incredible declaration at the end, which is, I do believe. I believe that you are the Son of God. And so this is an incredible picture as it goes into our text today where we find ourselves with Mary. So I want to read that last verse with that conversation with Martha and lead into this conversation with Mary. John chapter 11, verse 27. This is, again, Martha still speaking. She said to him, yes, Lord, I, what's that word there? I believe that you are the Christ the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And so she makes this declaration that she doesn't even fully understand. She makes this declaration based on something that just wells up inside of her because we know as this passage progresses, she doesn't understand it. She doesn't expect that her brother is ever going to come out of the grave. Some people even believe when she says, even now I know that whatever you ask of the Father, he'll give it to you, that that is her expectation that Jesus can raise the dead. But there's nothing in this passage from that point forward that ever tells us that she has an expectation that Lazarus has a chance of coming out of that grave. And it's amazing that even though she doesn't understand the aspects of her life, she still is able to make this incredible declaration. And I love the first part of that. When she starts to speak, the first two words she says is, yes, Lord. 
and, and I want you to know that when she says, yes, Lord, that is not a profession of understanding. That is a profession of faith. Do you see the difference in those two? A profession of understanding is, yes, Lord, I understand everything that you're talking about. I understand exactly how that's going to unfold. I understand what you're talking I understand the depths of it. She doesn't understand any of it. She doesn't make a declaration of understanding. She makes a declaration or a profession of faith. We are not called to understand. We are called to believe. Do you know the difference in those two? We're not called to understand all the circumstances of our life. We're not called to understand why God does the things that he does, why he allows certain things to happen and doesn't allow other things to happen. We don't understand those things. We're not called to understand those things. We're called to believe despite those things. And so Martha does just that. She has no idea about what Jesus is about to do here. But she reaffirms that she still believes despite her not understanding. And it's this very simple belief like this that presupposes that miracle. I mean, like, it's that little simple belief, even with the misunderstanding that she has, that becomes the precursor to the miracle that follows. So her faith, as we look at it, is kind of like this, it's like this rich mixture of trust and obedience and confidence that certain things about Jesus are absolutely true, even though I don't understand all those things about Jesus. She declares he's the Christ. He's the Son of God. He's the one who has come into the world. All three of those things are true because Jesus has made those claims about himself. She's heard those things, and she chooses to believe them despite what she has experienced, despite what she has seen. I think there's a lot that we can gain from that. Sometimes as we walk through life, we've got to hold on to what we know is true no matter what the circumstances say. You see that? Sometimes we have to hold on to those truths, and those truths will be the things that actually buoy us through the floods and the storms of life. It's those things that we cling to in the time of chaos and trouble in our life. Look how it continues in verse 28. When she had said this, said what? You are the Christ. You are the Son of God. You are the one coming into the world. I believe. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here, and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly, and she went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. So she, Jesus is coming into the town. He hasn't come into the village of Bethany yet. Martha runs out and meets him. Apparently he says, I would like to see Mary. She runs back, and Jesus doesn't go any further. He stays on the outside. He never goes to their house. I want you to keep that in mind as this go, uh, unfolds. He never goes to their house. He stays out there. Why? Because he knows what he's going to do. That would be a wasted trip to walk all the way to that house. Then have to walk all the way back where Lazarus is buried. So he's like, I'm not coming there. Tell her to come here. Okay? This is where it's going to happen. Tell her to come to me. And so she does. She comes to him. Look at verse 31. When the Jews who were with her, talking about Mary, in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, notice how in verse 28, it starts off giving us a little detail of information. It says that Martha went back and she spoke to Mary in private. Well, 
that gives us a little idea of the chaos that was there in their house. Now, you have to understand Jewish funeral services to really understand what's going on here. Now, again, when you unfold what we've already studied the last couple of weeks, one thing that's indicated by this passage is that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are from a very prominent family. The fact that when Lazarus dies, people come from Jerusalem to mourn with them. It speaks, number one, of their notoriety, but it also speaks to the fact that in that day and time, there were people that we would call professional mourners. Now, that sounds like the worst job you could possibly have, but if you think about it, if you have a culture where there are certain norms and expectations in mourning, so in other words, it would be like a funeral service that has very specific protocol. It would almost be like a veteran's burial. You ever been to a veteran's burial and there's things that happen in a very certain way? There has to be people there who know how those things are to happen and who's to be involved and where they're to stand and to inform them of all those things. Well, that in essence was like a professional mourner in the Jewish culture in that day and time. They would come there, they'd mourn, they would cry and they would weep, they would read the Psalms of lament, um, they would help kind of organize that whole process. So all these people are around and they are weeping, some of them are mourning, they're joining in with the family, and then all of a sudden Martha comes back and pulls Mary aside from all that's going on and says, the master's here and he wants to see you. Well, immediately she takes off. Well, all the mourners that are there is like, oh, she's going to weep for Lazarus. We must go with her because yeah? we have to carry this whole party over there, and we're going to go to the tomb. So they go, and they follow her, and she runs out, and she goes to see Jesus. Now, look what happens in verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Okay, now, there's some interesting things here that we don't even have time to dig into. Number one, I want to point out to you verse 34. Lord, come and see. That's a theme from the beginning of the Gospel of John. Do you remember when Nathaniel was trying to get Philip to come, or Philip was trying to get Nathaniel to come, and he came and he said, hey, you got to come and see. you got to come and see the Messiah. That, that's a theme that we saw over and over again. Come and see, come and see, come and see. And now he said, where have you laid him? Come and see. So we see that echoing as well. Um, not only that, we see also this picture of Jesus being moved. And there's some really interesting words that are being used here. This is John explaining what he saw of Jesus, okay? Maybe there was conversations that happened, and he asked Jesus, what, what were you feeling that? What was that I saw in you? What, what caused you to weep? And so anyway, as John records this, he says that he was deeply moved in his spirit and that he was greatly troubled. Again, let's think about some of the Jewish traditions surrounding mourning. Some of these people were professional mourners. Other than were Jews that came from Jerusalem. And, and these people were all mixed together. This is one and the same when it talks about the Jews. And then it tells us that Jesus was deeply moved. And I think the question we have to ask ourselves is, what exactly does it mean? What does that mean for Jesus to be deeply moved? And what was it that caused him to be deeply moved? Well, first of all, let's understand what the word itself means. The word means to be outraged. It means to be troubled. Um, it's this idea of anger and outrage. And one commentary even uses the word emotional indignation. Now, that's not exactly what we think of when we read the passage. 
When we read the passage, we think that Jesus is mourning because everyone else is mourning. He weeps because everyone else is He's carrying those burdens. But the word that is chosen there, that John specifically puts in there, says that he was troubled. The word means angered, outraged, emotional indignation. That is how John records Jesus' inward attitude and reaction to what's happening in front of him. So in this display of this indignation, in this display of emotion, of the part of Jesus, there is this display of him empathizing with the friends in their pain and their loss, or so it would seem. I mean, we would read that and think that's what he's doing. He's connecting with them in their loss. He's connecting them in their mourning. He's carrying their burdens with them. And so is that really what's going on? I would say this, and, and I know that you may challenge me on this, and it's okay. I may be wrong about this, but I don't think I am. I'm hardly ever wrong about these things, but I'm just kidding. I, I would say this. I would say it doesn't seem very likely. Here's why. To understand Jesus' response here, you really have to contextualize it within the whole of the passage, and really, beyond that, the whole of the Gospel of John. So Jesus doesn't get so mad here that he raises Lazarus from the dead. He doesn't get so mad and so mad at death and so mad that they're crying that he's like, move that stone out of the way. I'll show y'all who has power over that. He's not, he already knows that he's going to do this before he ever comes, doesn't he? Matter of fact, the, the scripture paints the picture that he waits because he knows Lazarus is going to die because he knows he's going to raise him from the dead. So Jesus isn't surprised by any of these things. Do you think Jesus is surprised that they're mourning? No. I mean, I think Jesus understands that they don't fully realize what's happening, that they're human, that they don't even have the understanding fully of who he is to its uttermost end. And so Jesus would understand these things. So when we think about that context, we have to ask ourselves, then what could be the thing that causes Jesus to weep? What causes him to have this emotional indignation? Could it be that Jesus doesn't like all the fake mourning that's going on? Maybe he doesn't like these mourners. Because there is another gospel that tells us about this time where Jesus was coming. He was asked to come and, and see this girl, and this girl had died. And he told them, hey, she's not dead, she's just sleeping. And it literally says that those who were mourners there, they were pro the professional mourners, that they left their mourning and immediately started laughing at Jesus. And they're like, you're crazy, she's dead. She's been dead for a while now. And he tells them to get out. And then he speaks to this girl and brings her back from the dead, okay? So Jesus doesn't always have this great understanding with these professional mourners. So maybe that's what's going on here. Maybe he doesn't like all that fake mourning. Here's the thing, though. John doesn't seem to see a difference between the mourning of Mary and Martha and the mourning of these Jews who have come from Jerusalem. If you go back and look at that verse right there, he includes them one and the same. And he doesn't say anything about their mourning is any different than that of Mary and Martha. So he seems to think that it is a legitimate mourning. So the next question would be this. Is it that Jesus is just mad at death itself? Is he mad at death because death is the ultimate result of sin? Maybe he sees what sin has done to his creation. Maybe he sees what sin has done to those that he loves. And he understands that this is a culture of death and a culture of rebellion. And maybe that is why he's so mad. And so he's displaying this, this final 
anger towards that final fruition of our sin, which ends in death and all the things that it robs us of, and it just makes him angry. Maybe he is mad because the fact that people just don't believe him. Over and over again, he's told these people who he is and what he has power to do. He's demonstrated those things, and people still don't believe. Maybe that's what he's angry at. I mean, there is uh, a precedence for that. Because Paul, later on in the New Testament, picks up on what he's learned from Jesus. And he says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. And by asleep, he means dead. That you may not, what? Grieve as others who have, what? So that, and what you have to understand in that context is Paul is talking about pagans. And that was what Jews believed, that pagans mourn as people who had no hope. Because pagans didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in anything beyond this life. So when they mourned the death of a loved one, they thought that was it. We're never going to see this person again. We've been robbed of this relationship. And Paul says to them, I don't want you to be ignorant as the pagans are ignorant. We don't want you to mourn as those who have no hope. Again, nothing wrong with mourning. Mourning is okay. We understand the loss that we have. It's okay for those emotions. God gave us those emotions. God expects us to mourn the loss of those that we love. But he doesn't want want us to mourn as those who have no hope. Grief is normal. But here's the thing. Despair is denial. It's denying the truth that Scripture says. It's denying the fact that God is real and there is an eternity beyond this life. It's denying the truth of heaven and hell. It's denying the fact that we are eternal creatures, not physical creatures. When we despair, we are denying the very truths of Scripture that we say we hold to. So it's okay to grieve. It's not okay to despair. But here's the question. Does God really get angry at the hopelessness of this world? Now, I would say, I mean, you could make the argument that there are times where God, you see the outpouring of God's anger towards the hopelessness and the rebellion of this life. But I would also draw you back to John 3, 16, which says, God so loved, man, I'm frustrated with the world. He loved the world. What world? The world is used in the context over and over again in the Gospel of John as the rebellious world, the people who have rebelled against him. God loves them who have embraced this lie. God loves them enough that he sent his son to tell them the truth, to bring them back, to show them who he really is. Very clearly, God loves this world even in its rebellion. So I think 35, verse 35 here in our text is the key. And that is that very simple verse. If you ever are asked to memorize a verse of Scripture, say, I'll memorize John eleven thirty five, because it'll take you longer to memorize where it is uh, than the actual verse. Jesus wept. So let's first remind ourselves that the whole Gospel of John was written for one purpose, and you are going to get this drilled into your head week after week for two years until when you're at the end of it. If you ever have a quiz and they say, what is the main point of John writing the gospel? If you get that wrong, shame on you, because you are not listening for two years, okay? But here's the thing. Why did John write his gospel? He tells us, and we keep pointing you to this verse, John 20, 31. He tells us, these are written, these things, these stories about Jesus, these things that I've put into this book, very specifically, because if I'd have written everything down, all the books in the world couldn't have held what Jesus did. I have specifically told you specific stories and examples so that you may, what? Believe. Now look at what it says. This is amazing. That Jesus is the, the 
and that by believing you may have what? Okay, what did Martha just say at the end of that section? I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, and that you are what? Coming into this world. John specifically picks up on what Martha says there. And remember, John says, that's my whole point in writing. That's why I've included this story. Jesus comes into this story and he brings life into it. So that you may have what? Life in his name. Okay. So it should be no surprise that this is somehow the emphasis of John writing this story. He is pointing out, maybe even emphasizing the unbelief. And how does God respond to the unbelief that we have? Well, first, let me say this. We all have to understand that unbelief is our natural state. It's just where we live. It's who we are. In our rebellion, in our depravity, we live in a state of unbelief. I would even argue that it's probably the greatest temptation that we have as believers that as we walk after Christ and we go through crisis situations, the temptation is to what? Not believe. Not believe that these are true. Not believe that there's something beyond this. Not to believe that God is in control. Not to believe that God is good. That he has our best interest in, mu- in mind. That he's not a good father. That he's not the father of lights and every good and perfect gift comes from him. We are tempted to not believe. However, there is something I think even greater here. And I think it shows us the balance of the character of God. One commentator puts it this way. Grief and compassion without outrage reduce to mere sentiment. While outrage without grief hardens into self-righteous arrogance and irascibility. What is he talking about? He's talking about when we go through these situations, we tend to go to one extreme or the other. And to do that is to negate some aspect of our creator, to negate some aspect of his character. This is another fascinating perspective. The verb that's used here, that's translated wept, okay? The actual Greek word here is very different. It's a different word altogether than the word that's describing Mary weeping and Martha weeping. It's a different word that John uses to pick up on here. Literally, the word that's used for Jesus means to shed tears, just like the other one does, but it means to shed tears, usually in some kind of lament before calamity falls. So what I'm telling you is that every other time that this word shows up in Scripture and is translated weeping, it is almost exclusively used for situations where someone is lamenting before calamity is about to fall. Okay? So do you understand the difference in that? So when I weep because I'm sorrowful, I weep because of what I feel not what I expect. If there is this weeping of expectation, there is this dread that comes with it. There is this horrification that comes with it because I haven't fully even realized what lies ahead of me. But I see it coming and it's inevitable. That's interesting that when John writes this, he says that Jesus weeps as one who is about to see calamity fall. Hmm. Do you think that was an accident? I think not. 
could these be tears because of Lazarus' death? I don't think so. Because when you talk about Lazarus' death, calamity is not falling. If anything, you're going to see the opposite. He comes back to life, right? So it can't be the loss of Lazarus. What about empathy? Maybe he's crying because he's empathetic towards Mary and Martha. Again, I want to point out their weeping is about to turn into dancing. He knows this. There's no doubt in his mind. So why use this word that signifies calamity is coming? Now, here's what I want to say to you. I want to propose something to you that I could be wrong. Probably not, but I could be wrong. And that is, I think Jesus is weeping because he doesn't want to bring Lazarus back from the dead. Because Jesus knows the reality of eternity. Now, I take that from the context of all of Scripture. To be absent from the body is to be present where? Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in when Jesus tells a story about another guy named Lazarus, coincidence, I don't know, maybe it was a parable, maybe he's telling a true story. I tend to think he's telling a true story because of the way he tells it. But Jesus, who has all the knowledge because he's the word from the very beginning, he tells this story about a beggar who dies, and Jesus says that when he dies, angels come and escort his soul to Abraham's side immediately. Now, if those things that Jesus said are true some of them he said before the cross some of those things are said even after the cross so the picture is eternity is true no matter which side of the cross you're on if this is true where is lazarus right now he's in paradise and jesus is about to call him back into the sin infested world where temptation reigns and rules and lazarus will have to die another death I think Jesus weeps because he doesn't want to do this, but he knows he has to do this because why is he doing it? So that you may believe, so that you may know that he has power over death, so that all those people may understand who he is because the scriptures say that when the Messiah comes, he has power over these things. And this is the most climactic thing. This is the demonstration. Yes, people have been, ri- uh, been raised from the dead before, right? I mean, Elijah's done that, right? Elisha has done that. But listen, nowhere in the history of humanity have we ever seen someone who has raised the dead from being buried. This is about to be an incredible display of power over death, which makes sense now why Jesus waited. And again, I pointed out to you that it's very interesting, the words that John uses. He says that when Jesus finds out about, or he's talking about, the death of Lazarus, the word, the term literally is used, rejoice. And then when he's about to pull him out from the grave, the term is weep with calamity that's about to fall. Now, I don't think those are accidents. But, again, there are other possibilities. Let's continue and look at this, verse 36. So the Jews said, as Jesus is weeping, see how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So over and over again, John keeps pointing out that when Jesus does something, it immediately creates a divide, doesn't it? There are people who believe, there are people who don't believe. So it just shows you when Jesus comes into there, immediately there is this division that begins to happen. 
there is a separation that begins to happen. And we see that right here with these people as well. Some of them are like, look how much he loved this man. Others are like, yeah, but if he could you know, heal the blind man, couldn't he have saved this guy from dying? So we see again the tension that's created when Jesus comes into a story. Did Jesus love them? Did he? Did Jesus love Lazarus? Yes. Did Jesus love Mary and Martha? Yes. Interestingly, it actually says because he loved them is why he waited two days before he even came, which is pretty fascinating. So the question then is, well, if he does love them, then is that why he's weeping? And I would say the text doesn't seem to support that. Why? Because Jesus' grief is different than theirs. They come from a point of misunderstanding. He comes from a point of complete knowledge and wisdom. And I think there's a difference here. Now, here's what I want to do is illustrate this. Have you ever been to a funeral where uh, there was a mixed group of people there? And by a mixed group of people, what I mean is there were believers and unbelievers. And the person who is being memorialized was an unbeliever. Here's the thing. Believers and unbelievers in that same room will all weep, but they'll weep for different reasons. Some will weep because they know that they will miss this person as their life continues on. I would say others weep because of the eternal repercussions and consequences that that person may be experiencing if they never invited Christ into their life. Even up to their dying moments, there's a possibility that they are in eternal damnation. And, and their soul weighs and they weep because of that. So the weeping is all there and it looks the same, but the weeping actually has a different context. Let's think of it from another perspective. How many of you are parents? And three of you are admitting it. I guess the rest of you are like, uh, where is this going? Um, how many of you have ever had a parent before? If you did, uh, that's right that way. Okay, some of you, several. A little few more of you have had parents. That's good. How many of you hate participating in raising your hand? <laughs> you do not. You just raised your hand. <laughs> all right, here we go. We all know that classic line that parents say, we always make fun of it until we become parents and we use it ourselves, which is when we are about to enact discipline, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. You know, and when you were a kid, you were like, well, Dad, we can solve that right now. <laughs> we can swap play. I don't want you to have to carry that burden. Here, let me hit you with that belt, you know. Well, I don't want you to carry that burden. I, I will gladly carry that for you. But I think as a parent, when you say that, there's more meaning and understanding from your part than the kid would ever understand. Because really what you're saying is, I'm going to spank you because I feel like that's what I have to do because I have a responsibility not only to our family but to society to raise a child that's not going to be a detriment to society but it's going to be a benefit. And, and you know what? The, the trouble is I'm going to carry this with me beyond this moment. I'm going to spank you and your butt's going to hurt but you're going to forget about it in about two hours. Okay? The thing is, I'm going to constantly keep carrying this with me. Did I go too far? Did I not go far enough? How often do I have to do this? How often should I not do this? I'm going to be constantly thinking of how do I rear this child? How do I send this person in the right direction? How much is too much and how much is not enough? And so it hurts me more than it hurts you because I don't want to do this. I don't want to beat my child. I don't want to sit here and have this, this tension that builds between us. I love them. So it hurts me more than it hurts you. Not but we're talking about physical. We're talking about the emotional burden that we carry of trying to figure out how do we raise this child, right? Are you with me, parents? 
Yeah, that's what we feel. Now, see, I would even say that that's the difference of the mourning that's happening here. Jesus is mourning, but he's mourning from a spiritual perspective. They're mourning from a physical perspective. They're mourning because there is a physical loss. Jesus sees a bigger picture there, and that's what stirs his weeping. I have a friend at the other campus. Her name is um, Joy Jacobs. Many of you, or some of you may know her. She is the wife of Mike Jacobs, and Mike Jacobs was the University of Mobile baseball coach. If you paid attention in the last couple of months, you know that he passed away tragically on the baseball field while he was out there with his team practicing, getting ready for this season. All of a sudden, he just felt like something was wrong. He went up to his office. He sat down for a moment. And then all of a sudden, while he was on the phone with his wife, he had a massive heart attack and hit the ground. So much so, she was a nurse. She, the assistant coach picked up the phone, and Joy said, he's having a heart attack. You need to give him CPR right now, and I'm going to call 911, and I'm coming there. She never got to speak to him again. He never came out of that. He died there and was dead, pronounced dead before he got to the hospital. When I got that news, the first news, uh, Colin was with me, and we were coming back this way. I can't remember what. We were coming by this church, and um, I said, well, I, Mike Jacobs, if you know Mike Jacobs, I mean, this, is the, this guy's the epitome of health, all right? I mean, this is a guy who got up every single morning before he went to work and did 45 pull-ups, okay? Three sets of 15. He would just do that. That was his morning routine. And this guy worked on that baseball field all day long. He worked with college athletes. That was his life. I mean, this guy was in great shape. So when I heard that he had a heart attack, I thought of it in the most minor way you could possibly think of it because I thought, yeah, he you know, probably felt something. Ooh, that doesn't feel good. Better go get this checked out. Oh, you had a little bit of a heart attack there. We need to watch you. So when he told me that, I said, well, when you find out more, let me know if I need to come that way. And the next thing, literally, I didn't even get to the church, and my phone went off, and it was a text from one of the other pastors, and it said, Mike didn't make it. And I remember looking at that, and I went, oh, my gosh. I think Colin said, what? What is it? He's like, he didn't make it. And I mean, I, I felt this, and like, that can't be right. That can't be. And so I called that guy, and I was like, did you mean that he didn't make it to the hospital yet, or you mean, like, he didn't make it make it? And he's like, no, he, he didn't make it. He died before they ever got to the hospital. They never brought him to again. And I said, all right, well, I'm headed that way. So I dropped Colin off here, and I turned around and started driving back to Mobile. And the only thing I could think about was when I saw his sweet wife. She's a sweet lady. We've known her for years and years. My wife has known her even longer than I have, back to her childhood. And I thought, man, when I see her, what am I going to say? You know, years of ministry never prepares you for those moments. And I just remember thinking, what verses? She's not going to believe verses. I, I can't just say, oh, everything's going to be all right. I just really, I was praying, Lord, just give me something to say. And I remember I walked in Spring Hill Hospital, emergency room. There's this hallway to the side. And when I walked in, they said, they're over there. And I walked in, and I saw the crowd gathered. And as I was walking down the hallway, I was still thinking, what am I going to say when I see her? And then all of a sudden, she came out of the crowd, and her eyes caught my eyes, and she just starts heading my direction. I was like, Lord, what am I going to say? And so I was thinking this moment, what am I going to say? And she comes up and she embraces me. And the first thing she says to me is, Jack, I don't understand all this, but I would never want him to come back here. That was her first words. I was like, there's someone who believes that there's something beyond this life that's better. Even in her mourning, even in her tragedy, she woke up that morning and everything was fine. At the end of the day, she was a widow. And she said, I wouldn't ask him to come back. Why? 
because this world is not our home. And one day, I'm going to go and be with him. Man, that's so powerful, isn't it? You see, the crowd didn't have that kind of perspective. They had not been afforded that truth yet. Their misunderstanding is what fueled Jesus' passion here, maybe even his indignation. And what we see is it even fuels it again. And then Jesus says, where is the tomb? Where have you laid him? And Lord, oh, Lord, here, we'll take you right there. So they take him there. And then eventually, what does it say? Move the stone back. Roll that stone away. Oh, we can't roll the stone away. He's going to stink because he's been in there for four days. I mean, he's been dead for a while, Jesus. And I think that's a pretty telling picture of what's going on. I have a picture of a tomb, what it looks like. These are uh, the tombs that they would use back in the first century, Jews would use. It was literally these like rooms that were hewn into stone or rock right there, just in the side of a mountain or a hill, very rocky um, area there. And um, what they would do is they would take that body, they would wrap it in linen, and they would tie, literally bind the legs together and bind the arms on top of the chest. So the only thing that really held everything together was those two binds, one over the legs and one over the arms. And that was to hold them tight there because they would put them there and they would let the body decompose. Once the body had an opportunity to decompose, they would come back in after a while and they would gather the bones, which would be the only thing left, and they would put them in these boxes that they call ossuaries. And the ossuary would carry the bones of that person with them. And they would, much like we have urns for ashes, it was kind of like what they would do with the ossuaries. They wouldn't necessarily bury them anywhere. They would just keep them somewhere. Now, this probably, they say this tradition probably goes all the way back to Joseph whenever he died in Egypt. And he said, when y'all leave here and go to the land God has promised, don't leave me here, but take my bones with you. And so that may have been the first practice of what the Jews continued from that day on. And so that's literally what they would do. So when they buried somebody, it wasn't a permanent burial. They would bury until the body decomposed, and then they would go and get the bones, and then they would carry that out. And then sometimes they would have other people who would be buried in there later on, or they would sell uh, that tomb for someone else. Okay, So that's a picture of what's going on there. So they've got him wrapped in this way. Now notice how Martha asks questions about Jesus' command. Roll that stone away. Whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. Whoa, wait a minute. That's um, Jesus. Um, I don't know if that's a good idea or not because he's been dead for a while and it's going to stink. You know how in the scriptures we always see them taking spices and um, myrrh and all those things into That's why is because they were trying to overcome the stench of decomposition. That's why they would use those very strong spices in burials because they did not have an embalming process. They had one. They didn't use it. Jews did not use that embalming process. And so Martha is worried that this would somehow uh, frown negatively upon Lazarus. That, that he just, they don't want that to be the experience of everyone there and the mourners that are there. Now, I think this is pretty amazing, and John highlights this. This is actually very different than what we've experienced people responding to Jesus in the past. Let me just give you a couple examples. Do you remember the wedding in Cana of Galilee? Jesus looks at the servants and says, Fill those stone water pots, take them out there to the middle of this village and fill them up at that fountain and bring those things back in here. Now, we would expect the servants to go, Jesus, you may have misunderstood. We have plenty of water. They said we ran out of wine. That, the wine didn't come out of that well, so we're going to have to come up with some other plan. Is that what they said? No. Immediately they said, all right, we'll do it. They went and they filled it to the brim, complete obedience. Later on, there was a guy who was an official son. He's apparently a Jew who worked for a Roman government or Roman official. Anyway, his son was very sick and at the point of death. And he comes and he says, Jesus, if you will come and pray for him, I know that he will be well. 
and he looked at him and he said, your son will live, go. And the guy doesn't ask for any guarantees. He just turns and he goes believing what Jesus said is true. The lame man at the pool, he's been there for 38 years, never been able to walk. Jesus says, take up your mat and walk. He doesn't look at Jesus and say, I haven't walked in 38 years. What are you talking about? Get up and walk. If I could do that, I'd have done it. No, he is obedient, complete obedience. What about the blind man? I mean, Jesus goes and spits in the ground, makes mud and rubs it on his eyes and tells a blind man to take a hike through the city and find your way to a pool and walk down some steps into a pool. That is death for a blind man. He's going to trip down them things and end up in a pool and he's going to drown. But this guy does not doubt at all. He finds his way there. He never questions Jesus. Now, here's what's amazing. None of those people knew Jesus on a personal level. But these people who knew Jesus personally felt like they could doubt him, felt like they could question him. And I think that's a warning for all of us. Sometimes it's our intimacy with Jesus that actually gives us our room for doubt. Have you ever become too familiar with Jesus to the point that you think you can reason with him? Have you ever become so familiar with Jesus that you think that when he tells you something, it's optional because, hey, I know Jesus. The thing that we see is our intimacy with Jesus should never bring us to a point of doubting him. We should live in complete surrender. We should live in complete obedience, even when we don't understand. But I think Martha is this incredible picture of the complexity that we all live with. We declare, oh, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Hey, I want you to do this. Oh, that doesn't sound too good. I thought I was the Son of God. (laughs) You know, sometimes we live between our declarations and our lack of obedience. Look how it continues in verse 23. Oh, going back to 23. I want you to see how this kind of developed. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. See, Martha's doubt doesn't make sense when you look at her declaration. And I would argue that neither does ours sometimes. The one thing that we see that's true of this passage is that this is for the glory of God. This is why Jesus says all of this is transpiring. That's why he waited two days. That's why he didn't go into the village because he knew what God had called him to do and that was right there. Here is the truth of why Jesus does what he does. This is the truth of why he's about to bring his friend back from the grave. You see, Jesus will only do what displays the glory of God. That's all he's interested in. He's not interested in being motivated by emotion. He's not interested in placating people so that they have their desires and their passions met. He is interested in one thing, and that is the glory of God. And guess what? That should be our only interest. That should be the only interest in our prayer life. That should be our only interest in our obedience to God. Not things are working out the way we want them to. Not God is blessing me the way I want it to. But for the glory of God that should saturate our prayers. Look at how it continues in verse 41. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. 
Now, I want you to think about what Jesus just prayed right there. So Martha apparently concedes, they remove the stone, and then Jesus immediately prays before he ever raises Lazarus. Now, it's amazing because he prays a addendum prayer. Did you notice that? By this prayer, he's actually already prayed. He said, thank you that you already heard me, and I thank you that you're going to do what I've asked you to do because it fits in with your will. But I'm saying all this so that everybody here hears this so they know the conversation that we already had because um, I know that you're going to do this because that's the whole reason that I'm here. Did you hear that? That's pretty amazing. This prayer actually demonstrates Martha's declaration and it demonstrates Jesus' claim against the Pharisees that he has this unique relationship with Father God. Jesus' prayer actually indicates to us that Jesus has already prayed for Lazarus' resurrection, that it's already guaranteed. It's a done deal. Think about that for a moment. Think about the implications of that. Wow. I mean, this very prayer, because it's so public, because it's so out there in the open for everyone to hear, is itself an invitation for everyone who hears it to draw into the intimacy that Jesus has with the Father. This is really nothing less than a declaration that Jesus has been sent by his Father and he's been sent to give an invitation for all of us to be rejoined through Jesus what was lost in the garden. Verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Now, it's amazing that this whole thing has been building for verses and verses and verses. And the climax of this just happens in this moment right here. Like, hey, come out. Okay, there he is. Take the clothes off and let's get on with this. I mean, you would think that there would be more drama built into this, that there would be more suspense, intrigue, mystery. Is it going to happen? Lazarus, come forth. Nothing happened. We couldn't hear anything. Then all of a sudden, there was some stirring on the inside. Is that just a wild animal that's made itself into the grave? Were we about to be disappointed? What is that? All of a sudden, we see a figure, a silhouette coming towards the, oh, it was just a ghost. Now, I mean, whatever, you know, the thing is, we would expect some kind of drama but there is no drama it is just Jesus speaks Lazarus hears and Lazarus obeys that's what John wants you to pick up from this I love what the country preacher said about it I know y'all have heard this but it's still it's good and the old country preacher said Jesus went up to that tomb and said Lazarus come forth he said the reason he did that, because if he didn't say Lazarus, every dead man in that cemetery would have got out of their grave that day. But I think there's something to that, too, because think, just a few passages back, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice, and I call them by my name. You see how this all fits together? Lazarus is one of his sheep. He knows his voice. He calls him by name. It's interesting to me that with all of the buildup of this, I mean, this moment is so simple, yet so profound. And I don't want you to miss the simplicity and yet the complexity. I mean, this is really how the whole story starts in Genesis. God created the world with words. The Hebrew actually um, 
brings it out more than even our English Bibles because our English Bibles kind of had some flair to it a little bit, but uh, Hebrew is a very terse language. It's very simplistic. So if you were actually to translate literally from Hebrew, it says, God said, light be, light was. That, that's, a, that's the simplicity of that verse right there. And it's that simple that God doesn't use a whole lot of words, does he? I think about when he raised Jairus' daughter, Talitha, kum. girl, come. Lazarus, come forth. I think about the book of Revelation. The whole thing builds to this fight between evil and good. And when they come face to face, the scripture says God doesn't even go. He sends his archangel and he defeats Satan with one, what? Word. No fight, no swords, no lightning, no fire, no hell or brimstone. One word defeats his enemy. What makes this so powerful is that although there are examples of the dead being raised, this is the only example of someone being buried, being raised from the dead. That's amazing. And you can't help but think that as he gives us the details of the wrapping of Lazarus and all of that, it's, it's a foreshadowing of Jesus' own death and burial because we have that same image when they go to the tomb and they see it. But yet, even though there's that similarity, there's also great differences. And the differences is this. When he tells Lazarus to come forth, Lazarus, because of him being bound, <laughs> he's like, can I get a little help, guys? Because <laughs> he's stuck in that, isn't he? It's tight. Does Jesus need help getting out of his? Because Lazarus was raised to physical life again. Jesus was raised to a new body, a glorified body. He exited out of all that holds us back in our bodies to something that we can't even imagine. So much so that he's eating fish with his disciples, and yet he shows up in a room that's locked. All the doors are shut, all the windows, but he shows up in there. He invites Thomas, come touch, see the scars that I have, they're still there. And yet, as he's walking down the road with some of his disciples and they realize who he is, <laughs> he vanishes. He's distinctly different than us. He didn't need any help with his grave clothes. Something else I want you to see real quick before we end, and that is this. Look at that last part of verse 44. Unbind him and let him go. I don't have time to go into the depths of this, but let me just tell you, this is absolutely amazing. When he says to unbind him, that word is directly connected to Torah. In the Old Testament, Torah is what binds us, okay? Matter of fact, whenever they would celebrate this, they would say, when you go back to the Shema, hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Right after that, what does it tell us to do? Teach these things to your children. Bind them on your forehead and on your wrists. Let them be as frontlets. Um, put them on the gates. Binding. So this idea of binding is directly related to Torah. When he calls Lazarus out of the grave, what's his first word? Unbind him. What does Paul say that the law has brought us? Death. The law brings us only to death. Why? Is it because the law is bad? No, the law is good. The law is the character of God. What it tells us is we'll never meet the character and glory of God. We always will fall so way short of it. The law only brings death continuously because we will never meet 
its criteria. When Jesus calls Lazarus out of the grave, he says, unbind him. The man has walked from death to life. It's a picture of the gospel. Unwrap this man. Why? Because the living shouldn't be wearing the clothes of the dead. I think there's a spiritual picture there. Paul says that when we are raised with Christ, that we are new creatures. We are not the old. We are new. But the process of sanctification is a messy one, isn't it? Because in this new life, we still want to wear those grave clothes sometimes. We still wear what is very inevitably a picture of the death that we used to have. And so there's this process of being unbound. There's this process of embracing this life in Christ, of having the righteousness of Christ applied to us instead of our efforts and our abilities of earning God's favor and love. We have to walk through this process of realizing we don't play that game anymore. We are unbound. And we are called to walk in that life. Isn't that amazing? How about you today? What do you believe? What are the things that you marvel in? What amazes you? What are the things that you hope for? Are they physical things or are they spiritual things? What I want to do is celebrate with a physical thing that has a spiritual meaning. And that is that we would finish celebrating the Lord's Supper together. As we finish, I want you to think about all that we have learned about God's power his demonstration of his love through sending his son, Jesus, to show us his love, to demonstrate it. God's great patience with us and our inability to understand and sometimes even to believe. And I want this to be a picture of what God was willing to do for us to bring us back to him. You see, there is no hope of coming out of that grave if there isn't a death and a burial of the son of God. He came at a time period where there was the most brutal execution you could possibly have, and that was death on a cross. It was the most long-lasting, most grotesque, most excruciating pain. You know why? That's what our sin demanded. And Jesus gladly took it all. He took the cup of God's wrath, and he drank it until it was empty, until the last drop fell out of that cup. He embraced it all for us. And he asked us, as he was sharing with his disciples in a Passover meal, all that Passover means from passing from being slaves to being free people, from the bondage into the freedom, from being isolated to being able to walk with God. And in that Passover meal and all that it symbolized, he took two elements of it and he said, I want you, as often as you do this, to remember me. I want you to remember, I want you to remember what I did. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. This represents my blood that is spilled from you. He said, take from my cup, all of you, and drink from it because only my blood's good enough for you. And this is the cup of the new covenant. This is what I'm willing to do for you. Take it and drink it. Remember me, remember me. And likewise, he took the afikoman and he broke it and he blessed it. And the English part of the Hebrew blessing says, Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the ground, which is a picture of resurrection. The bread of life would be laid into the tomb on the day of unleavened bread, and he would be raised to life on the day of first fruits. It's a picture of resurrection. It's a picture of what Jesus did. It's a picture of what we are promised. So as you eat and as you drink, I want you to remember what you have been promised, what it has afforded you, and what it cost God Almighty. I want you to remember him 
And I want you, in the face of tragedy and death, I want you to rejoice. I want you to rejoice because that rejoicing is believing that there's something on the other side of this. And that, my friends, is real. Not this life, the life to come. That's reality. Amen? Let's prepare our hearts. As those who are coming forward to serve, just prepare your heart. Just know that this is only for those who already have named the name of Jesus. Nothing complicated about it, but you have chosen to follow after him. You have responded to the call of God on your life. You are a child of God. Doesn't mean you're perfect, but it does mean that you're not holding anything back, that there's no unconfessed sin in your life, that you don't have the intentions of going and just doing whatever you want to do and asking God to bless your efforts. But you really want, even in your frailty and your misunderstanding, you want God's will for your life. If that's you, then that's who needs to come forward and to receive. And as you receive, may you experience the blessing of what these elements represent. God's great love for you, his sacrificial love for you. Lord, may you be honored and glorified as we recognize and remember the great debt of ours that you paid with your body, with your blood. Lord, may we celebrate all that this represents for our healing and for our resurrection. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.